This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, and welcome back to the Money and Markets podcast. This week, we've got a bumper interviews episode with lots of great fund managers on to talk about the year that's almost passed and the year ahead. We'll also be covering the latest news and moves in the market. Joining me is Danny Hewson. Hi, Laura. Yes, we're going to be looking at why those protests in China have caused markets to wobble, the latest strike action and the impact on companies and Elon Musk's latest spat. We've also got a bit of pensions news as the regulator has made a big announcement about British steel pensioners. I've also been crunching some numbers on the ridiculous situations where you end up paying eye-watering tax when you get a pay rise. And those fund manager interviews we mentioned. So Dan has spoken to Alex Wright from Fidelity Special Values Investment Trust about his outlook for 2023. And he's chatted to Kirsty Desson from Aberdeen's Global Smaller Companies Fund about how she's coped with a difficult year for small caps. And with signs that inflation could be near its peak, investors are asking if they need to worry as much about the high cost of living going into 2023. To help answer that question, Lazard Fund Manager Steve Reeford explains to Dan why he thinks that high inflation could stay on the agenda for longer than you might think. Well, that is a lot to get through. But as ever, let's start with the markets news. So, Danny, let's kick off with those China protests and the impact that they've had on markets. Yeah, I mean, unprecedented protests. The the images that we saw over the weekend, I think, just surprised so many people. And in terms of markets, well, it triggered something of a meltdown on Monday. Started in Asia and steadily moved westwards as the day went on. We saw, not surprisingly, mining stocks like Anglo-American and Glencore fall. BP and Shell were down as the price of a barrel of Brent crude dipped back to January levels. That's before, of course, uh, President Putin invaded Ukraine. We also had European automakers down. Also, a whole host of luxury goods makers like Louis Vuitton and Remy Cointreau. Plus, we also had Apple. I mean, that was so badly impacted on reports that riots at the Foxconn factory, the only place that manufactures its iPhone 14 Pro, would seriously impact the handset's availability this Christmas. And of course, all of this came on Cyber Monday. There have been some reports suggested that COVID lockdowns are costing Apple a billion pounds a week in lost sales. Now, as with markets this year, what goes down seems to come back up again. And Tuesday brought renewed optimism. Now, optimism that was sort of always lurking on the sidelines um, because there's been a lot of talk that these protests could actually really bring forward this change in policy, this softening of the zero COVID policy, uh, that President Xi would really look to start to make a change because the manufacturing sector in China has been absolutely clobbered. In fact, figures out this morning, we're recording this on Wednesday lunchtime, showed that it had contracted faster than expected in November. And that is having an impact on what some companies do. Now, I was speaking earlier about Apple. Well, they have put out figures saying that they are cutting back on the amount of manufacturing done in China. So if you look to the five years to 2019, 
44 to 47% of its suppliers' production sites were, were based in China, but that fell to 36% in 2021. So there's been a real shift. However, for China and for global supply chains, there's more good news on the horizon. Today, we've heard that its big manufacturing hub of Huangzhou has eased restrictions in about half of its 11 districts. That's something that global markets have been really positive about today. And just generally the expectation that inflation has peaked. We've had news from the Eurozone. Inflation's fallen for the first time in 17 months, down from 10.6% to 10%. And I know we've had so much bad news for equities this year, but global stocks are actually on track for their first back-to-back monthly gains since the summer of 2021. Now, just to give you sort of some indication, the FTSE All World Index has risen 11% since the start of October. The S&P 500's up more than 10% over the same period. The FTSE 100 almost 10%. So, you know, clearly there is some positive momentum at the moment. And not to drag down that positive news, but there does appear to be a winter of strikes ahead. So we've got more announced by train workers and by Royal Mail. Danny, what's the impact of this on other businesses as well as the ones that are striking? Yeah, we've had some figures out from the Centre for Economics and Business Research. Now, that think tank estimates that the strikes alone could cost the economy almost £700 million in lost output. Now, that's just stopping people from getting to work who can't do their job from home. The hospitality industry reckons that strikes could cost the sector £1.5 billion. So that's kind of similar to where we were last year with, with the Omicron wave of COVID. Now, As you say, there are rail strikes, there are postal strikes. Postal strikes uh, started again today. And I was um, just taking a look at uh, the share price of the Royal Mail parent company, International Distribution Services, down almost 10% since the start of last week. Now, Royal Mail claims that it's lost um, about 100 million because of the series of walkouts that have already taken place. But as you say, you know, it's not just hospitality. A number of smaller retailers have been really concerned about postal strikes, particularly because, you know, it coincided with Black Friday, one of the busiest shopping days of the year, which means that for a lot of retailers that rely on people buying online and getting it shipped out, they might just have been put out. And we've had the boss of pub chain Fuller's um, saying that, you know, Christmas parties could be cancelled unless these strikes are called off quickly. This is the rail strikes because, you know, people are worried about whether or not they're going to be able to get home. They're not sure if the strikes are actually taking place. So clearly it is all about making sure that whatever decisions are made are made in a decent amount of time. Now, I've promised that amidst all the bad news, there is some good news because, We have had one resolution by the CWU union with BT because there has also been a number of strikes going on at BT. And of course, Christmas time, it's a hugely busy period of time for people using, you know, things like streaming services and the web browsers and that kind of thing. 
a pay deal has finally been struck, which is expected to bring an end to those strikes. Now, this agreement, coupled with an earlier pay increase, will see the lowest paid getting a rise of over 15% this year. Now, that is a big number. And clearly, I would imagine that the unions of uh, other uh, striking workers at the moment will be taking a look at that and comparing whatever deal is on the table for them. But in terms of the share price, investors are sort of waiting and seeing what, what exactly is going to happen because BT has also promised to up the cost savings by an additional £500 million by 2025. So clearly with that pay deal on the table, that is just an added cost pressure. And there is rarely a day or even a minute that goes by at the moment without another headline about Elon Musk. And this time he's picked a new fight with another tech giant, hasn't he? Yes. Um, uh, Elon Musk, I mean, uh, you you wouldn't use Twitter, don't you? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, And I know that the fact that Elon Musk has now taken over has brought an awful lot more users to the site, people sort of waiting to see what happens next. And if Elon Musk was going to pick a fight with anybody on the social media platform, you'd be surprised to learn that it's Apple. I mean, Apple is absolutely massive. And if you think about Twitter versus Apple, which is sort of the strongest brand, which one relies more on the other, you would assume that Twitter relies more on Apple because, of course, a lot of people will use the app through their iPhones, their iPads, and use it through the App Store. Now, Elon Musk has said that um, Apple's halted most of its advertising on Twitter. It's also said that the company has threatened to remove the platform from its app. So cue lots of hand-wringing and threats by Elon Musk that maybe he'll launch his own handset. But, you know, Apple is responsible for a huge amount of revenue for Twitter. Um, About £40 billion, they reckon, the first part of the year. So, you know, not having that advertising is, is a big knock for Twitter. And they've seen lots of companies sort of coming off the platform while they sort of see how this change goes down, what what happens to uh, speech and the controls that are, are put in place to, to limit sort of hate speech and that kind of thing. But Elon Musk does actually have a bit of a point, and it's a point that has already been pulled apart and challenged in the courts, actually, by the um, uh, parent company of Fortnite, Epic Games, who said, you know, having to pay between 15 and 30% of any subscription charges to Apple just from being able to access it on their app. It is just huge amounts. And Twitter is hoping that it's going to be able to get subscription money from people that use Twitter. And they could also have to fork out that kind of percentage to Apple. So, you know, clearly, this is something that is going to run and run. And, you know, Elon Musk is is certainly not backing down. In fact, he's been poking the bear again. He's had a Twitter poll, the results of which were announced uh, yesterday. He was asking his followers if Apple should publish all of its censorship actions that it has taken that affect customers. 
Almost 85% of the 2.2 million respondents said yes. At the moment, Apple hasn't commented on any of this. We will keep an eye on that soap opera and further episodes of (laughs) Elon Musk drama. Um, But finally, for markets, there are rumours that it's coming home, which is about as much football commentary as you're going to get from me. But (laughs) pubs must be perking up at the news that the England team is through to the next round. Is that even the right terminology? I'm very out of my depth here talking about football. Yeah, well, it's um, it's led the group, um, so it, it's gone through to the knockout rounds. Um, I, I'm not a football commentator, but I really did enjoy watching the uh, watching the match against Wales last night, and even managed to drag my daughters down for a bit of it. So, uh, yeah, it sort of got us all sitting around the telly in a way that that not much does these days. <laughs> But I think there were an awful lot of people that weren't watching it in their living rooms that instead were watching it from pubs because, of course, that is where you get the atmosphere. And we know that um, Domino certainly put out some figures following the last World Cup talking about the amount of um, pizza sales that it had enjoyed during the World Cup. And its sales were up massively on the week matches but down on weekend matches because, you know, people then get a chance to go out. There has been a bit of concern that maybe it will sort of impact the Christmas party trade. I suppose there'll be some people that might decide to have a Christmas party and watch the football. But just taking a look at how um, equities in that sort of retail and leisure sector um, have been over the last couple of weeks since the start of the World Cup, just looking at the FTSE 350, uh, Whitbread up almost 4%, Domino's up 3%, um, Small Caps, Marston's up 9%, but Weatherspoons down and the restaurant group down 6%. Um, so, you know, clearly there is concern that some of these businesses won't get the sort of value from the extra trade. But I suppose it does depend on how far through the competition England can get. Um, Now, um, obviously, we were talking a lot about tax changes in the wake of the autumn statement. You have been delving into some of the figures about what it means for people what tax rates they'll actually pay at different levels. And you mentioned earlier that some of the figures are eye-watering. Yes, the UK tax system has always been fairly head-scratching to understand, but the latest tranche of changes that were announced by the Chancellor um, changed some of that and add some more kind of convoluted measures to it. So I thought it would be interesting to look at some examples of different people. If they've got a £1,000 pay rise, how much of that money they would actually end up keeping. The caveat to this is that I've obviously picked specific examples where certain um, tax breaks and allowances kick in or you lose certain allowances. So these are kind of cherry-picked examples, but I think they really highlight how complicated our tax system is. So, Danny, if I'm going to hand you a £1,000 pay rise, how much would you hope that you might take home from it? Uh, I would kind of hope that I might take home about £800. How about £6.50? Whoa. (laughs) So 
this is the example where um, if you're a high earner and you're a graduate, then you're going to be hit by a multitude of different taxes. So if you um, earn over £100,000, then you're subject to what's called the personal allowance taper. So this is where you, you lose your tax-free element of your earnings um, and you lose it gradually until you earn about £125,000 and then it's completely wiped out. What that means is on that chunk of money between 100 and 125 grand, um, you're effectively taxed at 60% on that amount because you are subject to your usual 40% tax, but then you're also losing your tax-free allowance. So that's whacked on top. On top of that, if you're a graduate, then you would be paying 9% of your income towards your student loan. Uh, on top of that, you would be paying national insurance. Um, and then if you had a postgraduate loan as well, so if you'd gone on to do a master's or any sort of postgraduate degree, you pay an additional 6% of your salary back in your postgraduate loan. And that's on top of your normal um, student loan, that 9% that I just talked about. Um, so you put all of those things together, plus the fact that once you've tipped over into the additional rate of, earn, of income tax, which from next April will be um, about £125,000, you lose your personal savings allowance, which is your tax-free allowance for savings income. So all of that added together, all of those different allowances and tax rates and student loan repayments all put together mean that if your employer gave you a £1,000 pay rise and you were earning around £124,000 already, so we're talking higher earners here, you would only keep £6.50 of that pay rise. The rest would get lost in allowances and tax rates and national insurance and student loan repayments. Um, I think it just serves to highlight how complicated and convoluted our tax system is. There's another <laughs> example of um, parents get hit particularly hard because there's certain um, allowances or government handouts that you get that then get taken away when your earnings hit a certain level. Um, child benefit is the um, obvious example. So you get child benefit, but once you hit what's called the high income charge of £50,000, you start to lose that child benefit. Um, you lose it gradually, so it's tapered out. Um, it's quite a convoluted way that you lose it because everyone gets a different amount of child benefit depending on how many children they have. But what it means is that someone who um, is earning about £51,000, who's also repaying their student loan, paying their normal income tax um, that I talked about earlier, um, and paying national insurance, and then if they also were subject to that child benefit high income charge, if they got a £1,000 pay rise, they would actually only keep £151 of it because they would end up being taxed on a chunk of it and then also losing their child benefit, which would offset it. Um, and I think the difficult thing here is that lots of people will just, you know, get a pay rise, think, oh, that's fairly decent, um, be really happy with it, assume that their take home pay is going to increase and then get a shock when they see their pay slip the following month. Lots of people aren't aware of how all of these things interact and how um, all of these things are impacted. The good news is that there is a way around it. So if you put, um, if you salary sacrifice anything, so the most popular one of this would be um, using salary sacrifice to put money in your pension, then you can bring your income back down below some of these thresholds. So that um, child benefit charge, for example, you could put a certain amount in your pension so that you were back below that £50,000. Um, limit but it's just about people being aware they're going to be hit by these allowances and being savvy enough to know okay 
I need to up my pension contributions or some other salary sacrifice. But also being able to afford to do that. If you're putting money in your pension, that's money that you're not going to have, um, you know, to take home. You'd be disappointed, wouldn't you, if you got a nice pay rise and you ended up taking home just a few quid of it? <laughs> Can you imagine? There's another ridiculous example where um, with tax-free childcare, as soon it's a £2,000 kind of handout from the government to go towards childcare costs. But as soon as one or the other parent earns a pound over £100,000, you lose that entire £2,000 benefit. So you end up in this perverse situation where someone could get, you know, a tiny pay rise, tip them over that £100,000 earnings limit, even just by £5. And then that pay rise costs them £2,000 because they can no longer claim that government handout towards their childcare, um, which lots of people wouldn't necessarily be aware of. So that's even worse, where a pay rise actually costs you two grand. Well, it's a good job we've got you here to talk us through it all. Um, We mentioned we've got a whole load of fund manager interviews this week, but we also wanted to flag that we put out a bonus podcast episode with an interview with renowned investor Nick Train, manager of Finsbury Growth and Income Trust, about the challenging year he's had and portfolio changes that he's made as a result. You can listen to it wherever you found this podcast. Just scroll back to the previous episode. So back to this podcast episode, let's go to the first of those fund manager interviews now. So inflation has been one of the hottest topics this year, and it could stay that way in 2023, according to Steve Reeford, who helps run the Lazard Thematic Inflation Opportunities Fund. So Dan Catesworth caught up with Steve to see if we're at a turning point for this trend. And Dan has been out and about a lot recently, catching up with fund managers for the year end. He also caught up with Alex Wright from Fidelity at the AJ Bell Investable Conference to get his thoughts on the current state of the market and to find out why he's so enthusiastic about investing in that West Bank. Let's hear what they had to say. There are some signs that inflation is easing in certain areas, but I was just wondering what if you thought that inflation will still actually be a big problem next year or actually we might have seen the the peak of it and it's going to be you know, companies going to be sort of saying much more positive things about sort of the, the pressures easing a bit for them. So, Well, I mean, with the, with the obvious caveat that no, nobody knows anything for sure when it comes to forecasting, you know, macroeconomic indicators. I think a, a, it's a reasonable proposition to say that in the near term, inflation is probably peaking right now. So, you know, there are lots of reasons for that. Simple base effects of moving into next year uh, mean that I think that you, you can see signs of inflation rolling over. Uh, there are two reasons for that. It depends on which side of the Atlantic you're on. Uh, it, on, on this side of the Atlantic, inflation has been caused by energy prices, food prices, and that's what's led to this cost of living crisis here. Uh, along with damaged currencies, which is important, those things. Now, all of those things uh, can easily sort of, not necessarily roll over, but even if commodity prices were to remain flat going into next year, then obviously inflation as a whole would would drop down. Um, On the other side of the pond, it's a little bit different. The drivers of inflation there are probably stickier because they're related to two things, wages, which are running at about 5 6% at the moment in the US, and shelter costs, so rents and so on. And those things tend to be a little bit stickier. So the answer to your question is it does depend on, on which side of the Atlantic you're on. Over here, I would imagine that the very sharp inflation we've seen is, is likely to roll over. I still think it'll roll over in the US, but but probably a little more gradually. So that's, near, that's the near-term outlook. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, the, um, 
that the, the, the really interesting question, I think, is sort of what happens next after that. Uh, after you've seen 2023 with inflation coming down, you know, what do the, what do the next few years have in store for us? So what, I mean, obviously, you, you, with your, your sort of inflation-themed fund, um, you obviously wouldn't have set it up if you didn't think that inflation would be an issue for quite a few years down the line. Um, what, what are you trying to do? You, you want to invest in companies that have got pricing power, who can sort of pass on extra sort of costs to the, to the consumer or, you know, lots of intellectual property, that sort of stuff? Uh, if you look over the last decades, average CPR in the US was 1.7%, which is a remarkably low number. And uh, But it's not just the level of the average CPI over that decade, it's the, it's the lack of volatility. So volatility last decade really meant CPI between one and three, whereas that's so it's very stable. Now, if we're moving into an environment where inflation is more persistent, it doesn't necessarily mean that inflation is, is high, but with low volatility. What it probably means is that you have an economic situation where you have a big inflationary boom, just like the one we've just had in the last 12 months. And that spins the economy into a recession, dragging down inflation back towards zero again. And policymakers will then panic. They'll really back off, you know, really start the printing presses again. And what do you get then? Inflation resurgence again. So we sort of lurch from inflation recession to inflation to recession. And that's exactly what happened in the 1970s. So, uh, you know, where you had uh, average inflation from the year 1968 to 1982 in, in the US was 7.3%, which is a remarkably high number. But that didn't mean that CPI was between 8. CPI was between 15% during those huge inflationary booms and all the way down to 2% during the recessions. So, so that's the sort of environment that we um, envisage, I think, or at least certainly I think the market is underpricing the risk of that kind of environment. So that poses all sorts of interesting challenges for investors as to how they should position themselves. But let me just pause there for a second and see if you have any questions about what I've just said. That was a very long sentence. No, that's that's perfect. That definitely all makes sense. So, yeah. Okay. So, but then then the question really comes back to you know what what do investors do about this? You know whether it's a big institutional pension fund or whether it's you know my parents at home Devon in their mid seventies worrying about how they can maintain purchasing power, which is a major issue for. for for, for all investors. And I think one's mind really goes to, uh, first of all, places like real assets or commodities or perhaps infrastructure, you know, things that collectibles, you know, things that over the long run have, have proven to maintain their sort of store of value. But each of those as well have some issues. So commodities are notoriously volatile and I don't advocate for anybody to put all of their money into, into commodities. Um, you know, similarly, things like infrastructure, are subject potentially to windfall taxes. You, you can imagine that no utility is going to be allowed to make extreme profits for the next so without it getting clawed back. So there's all sorts of additional issues there. And then one's mind turns to equities. And the question is, you know, how do equities do in an inflationary environment? And, and the answer is, there are worse places to be. I mean, equities, after all, do have some degree of pricing power, the underlying prices. But also, equities tend to struggle if CPI is over, say, 4%. So, they, so the equity markets will be very choppy over the coming years in this sort of environment as a whole. But then the question becomes, perhaps there is a subset of equities that can actually do well and prosper and benefit 
in an inflationary environment. And that's an incredibly interesting concept because we haven't had inflation for such a long period of time that that set of companies that do have inflation-fighting credentials are probably materially underappreciated today by the market. So a really interesting alpha opportunity and return opportunity for investors today if they think that those sorts of credentials could become very, very valuable, and, and we think they will. Because hmm. So in your portfolio, um, you've got Deer & Co as one of the holdings. I thought this is quite interesting because there is an argument that if, if commodity prices are going up, um, soft commodity prices, you've got uh, farmers you know, getting more money, and therefore they can afford to buy more John Deere equipment, but equally their input costs are going up, you know, energy costs are going up and, and their raw materials. So actually that they don't have as much money as you think. So what, what, why would Deere be a good company to invest yeah. in for an inflationary environment? So, so what, we've, what we've done across this portfolio as a whole, the inflation opportunities portfolio, is identify six groups of companies, six types of thematic you know, uh, investment opportunity, and they each have a, a particular style and a particular quirk to them. Now, Deere, John Deere, falls within a theme that we call industrial pass-through. And what we mean by that are companies that are focused on the industrial sector, selling typically B2B, so business to business. And, and uh, they're not necessarily the best businesses in the world under all macroeconomic environments, but they sort of have a secret. And that secret is that embedded within their business models, they tend to be able to contractually pass through uh, some form of their input costs. And, and what you see, and that can be an actual contract or it can be just by virtue of a very consolidated industry structure. Now, as I'm sure you know, the agricultural equipment is very, very concentrated. John Deere is far and away the largest player there. You know, Cat, Caterpillar has some others and then there are one or two other players as well. But John Deere has this ability to pass on its input costs. So I think you're absolutely right to highlight that from a farmer's perspective. You know, you can sort of see net farm incomes going up, but their costs are going up as well. So that's fair enough. But I guess what we're trying to say is that John Deere is the type of company that's able to respond to its own input prices going up. And if you sort of think about what those input costs are, you know, there's a lot of steel that goes into, you know, a tractor, for example, steel prices are through the roof. Well, John Deere is able to pass that through in terms of its overall margin structure. So it's these, it's really a quirk of the business model anything else. Um, not all companies, of course, are able to pass through input costs. And what you've seen, as you alluded to a moment ago, in the last 12 months is many companies have seen huge margin compression. So their earnings have gone down a lot, whereas there are a set of companies out there whose margins have gone up or at least stayed flat. And those are the ones that you want to own in an inflationary environment. So that was Dan talking to Alex Wright and investing in smaller, less proven companies isn't for the faint hearted. It has been a roller coaster ride recently with 2022 going down in history as one of the most volatile periods. We've certainly used that word a lot on this podcast. Now, Dan had a chance to talk to Kirsty Desson, who helps to run the Aberdeen Global Smaller Companies Fund, to talk about her experiences over the past 12 months and to find out where she sees opportunities going into the new year. 2022 was a year to forget for small cap investors. So Kirsty, are you surprised at how badly they performed? Yeah, I think it is true that 2022 has been 
a very ugly year for all asset classes and across most geographies, with the exception of energy stocks and energy producing countries. And that's been because we've seen these extraordinary events, um, continued lockdowns in China, obviously the war in Ukraine. And together, these have really exacerbated the already present inflationary pressures that we saw. And so these events have been very unpredictable um, for investors, and that's what's caused the markets to slide. If we look at global small cap markets themselves, actually what we see is that small cap has performed more or less in line with large cap. Um, If you look at the performance year to date, both markets are down approximately 17% in US dollar terms after the bounce last week. And that is typically what we expect to see. In down markets, small caps and large caps actually perform equally poorly. I think for small cap investors, though, the light at the end of the tunnel is that as we get through this downturn, small cap stocks strongly outperform in the recovery phase. Now, is the sell-off in small caps linked to people pulling money out of the equity markets and liquidity issues for smaller companies, meaning that everyone heading for the exit cause share prices to slump? That's an interesting question. I mean, to be honest, um, that's not been our experience. And that may be because we tend to invest at the mid to upper end of the market cap band, because that's where we find the optimal risk reward scenario for investors. Um, And in actual fact, many of our companies are actually doing share buybacks now, given where valuations are. So that's provided an additional liquidity event for investors. Now, against this negative backdrop, does the fact so many small caps are down in value create one of the best buying opportunities that you've actually seen in a long time? Um, Absolutely. Um, If you look at particularly small cap growth stocks across the UK, the US and in Europe, what you will find is that um, PEs are significantly below Um, in many cases at or below one standard deviation, below their 10-year average PEs. So valuations are at a very attractive level for investors. In fact, in many cases, when we look at the stocks themselves, what we see is a sharp disconnect between where fundamentals, where earnings are, and where PEs are. So um, a great example of this is Pool Corp, which is a US company that supplies pool parts it's the largest supplier in the world in a highly fragmented market. 60% of their revenues are recurring. They're from maintenance. So if you have a pool, you still have to buy chlorine and all the chemicals that go into it. And if we look back at the GFC period, this stock actually performed very well. But what we've seen this time around is that the shares have sold off indiscriminately whilst earnings have held up very well. So this is a great example of a stock where there is a huge opportunity emerging um, to buy into this name. And we see similar stocks across the portfolio um, where there is a high percentage of recurring revenue and yet the shares have sold off in this um, value rotation. So we are very optimistic looking forward about the potential for small cap stocks. Something like Poolcore, would that have been a beneficiary in the pandemic? 
I was just wondering, did it have like a big spike in earnings during COVID and then actually demand eased off? And if so, is that a particular reason why the shares might have sold off recently? There's certainly a perception that this has been a COVID beneficiary. And you're right that the stock did perform extremely well over 2020 and into 2021. However, if you look at the third quarter results and management's guidance, um, management spoke about the strength that they're continuing to see in demand, the continued um, search for higher value added products, um, and they reiterated their guidance for next year. So all of this gives us a lot of conviction in the long term outlook for the likes of Pool Corp. Now, quite a few people are saying US small caps could be a good place to invest in 2023 as the country's got energy independence. The economic outlook is better than many other G7 countries and a recession might only be short lived. Do you share that view? Yes, um, I think you are. You're right. Um, there are a lot of positives in the US market. Certainly economic data so far has been extremely resilient. Um, if we look today at the consumer retail numbers, they came out much better than expected. I think for US consumers, um, even if their equity portfolio has come down, there's still a lot of value in their um, home prices. And also the labor market is very strong. So that's um, fueling a lot of consumer confidence. I would caveat that um, confidence in the US market, though, going into next year with what happens with the Fed. And we are starting to see a divergence in central bank policy, whereby the Fed is being forced to continue with its stance because of this strong economic data, whereas other um, central banks are starting to become more dovish. Um, we also need to watch what happens to the US dollar. So there are various moving parts to the US story, which we need to keep an eye on going into next year. Where else in the world do you think we'll see good opportunities for small cap stocks in 2023? There are, the, sorry, the geographic picture is, is slightly fluid um, because of these large macro issues like interest rates and currency that are influencing markets. There's certainly some interesting stocks coming through in the European market. Um, European markets sold off very early. There's a lot of bad news that is now factored in to share prices. And the European market tends to be skewed towards industrial stocks, which may very well outperform in a recovery phase. If we look at Asia, there's some interesting dynamics happening in Asia. Um, in Japan, obviously, the central bank has kept interest rates very low. In China, interest rates likewise haven't been moved up. And um, there's more positive news about China reopening, which is a major catalyst in Asia. And for EM, I think EM investors are bullish around this inflection that we've seen in the US dollar. So um, from a top-down perspective, there are some very interesting potential tailwinds um, around the world. I think for us, we're very much focused on finding those great companies that are able to grow irrespective of the macro environment. Um, and many of these are beneficiaries of structural growth themes that we see coming through around the world. So companies that benefit from 
trends in automation, uh, companies that benefit from um, trends in finding energy solutions, for instance, um, companies that make solar inverters or technology that's used to transport LNG, uh, those companies continue to have a very solid growth coming through, not just for next year, but also the year after. Um, so those are the sorts of companies that we are focusing on. And finally, Laura, we're going to end on some good news as the regulator, the FCA, has issued a final resolution for those people caught up in the British steel pension scandal. Give us the details. Yeah, so the FCA has confirmed that the 1,100 British steel pension scheme members who would misadvise to transfer out of the scheme will receive 49 million in redress payments. So that will be a big relief to people involved in this saga um, because it brings kind of a close to some of those proceedings. It means that the average redress payment will be about £45,000. However, that is a fairly decent drop on what it was expected to be. So the that final figure that the FCA settled on is about £20 million less than it had previously set out. Um, That's partly because fewer people are now expected to get that payment and partly because annuity rates, which have been used to determine the value of the payout, have improved substantially this year. Um, Hopefully, this will help to bring to close some of this painful saga for the people involved in it. So that's everything we've got time for this week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We hope you enjoyed all of the interviews. We'll be back next week with an interview with BBC's Dougal Shaw about his new book, CEO Secrets. So he's had the chance to pick the brains of some of the biggest bosses in the world and has some great insights on what makes different kinds of CEOs tick. We will see you then. Bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes. And the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.